Hi, I'm Ben Caplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Today, I spoke with Jeremy Siskind about ways to introduce piano students to jazz. Pianist composer Jeremy Siskind was called a genuine visionary by the Indianapolis Star. Jazz Inc. said he seems to defy all boundaries, and Downbeat Magazine described his music as rich in texture and nuance. A top finisher in several national and international jazz piano competitions, Siskind is a two-time laureate of the American Pianist Association and the winner of the Nottingham International Jazz Piano competition. Since making his professional debut juxtaposing Debussy's etudes with jazz standards at Carnegie Hall's Weill Hall, Siskin has established himself as one of the nation's most innovative and virtuosic modern pianists. A highly respected educator, Siskin has written 17 publications with Hal Leonard, including the landmark instructional books Jazz Band Pianist, Playing Solo Jazz Piano, and First Lessons in Piano Improv. His self-published instructional books, Playing Solo Jazz Piano and Jazz Piano Fundamentals, are in the top 50 best-selling jazz books on Amazon. He currently teaches at California's Fullerton College, chairs the National Conference for Keyboard Pedagogy's Creative Track, and spreads peace through music in places like Lebanon, Tunisia, and Thailand with the nonprofit organization Jazz Education Abroad. Jeremy Siskind is a Yamaha artist. This episode is meant for those teachers who have a bit more of a classical background and want to explore ways to either introduce their students to jazz or who themselves want to become more familiar with jazz. The first part of the conversation was more big picture, and we talked about why it tends to be so much more common for jazz musicians to have a classical background than vice versa. And we talked about what students and teachers with more of a classical bent can gain from having jazz as part of their curriculum. In the second part of the conversation, we got into the specifics and Jeremy offered teaching sequences and activities to work with students on jazz improvisation, as well as general expressive considerations to be sensitive to when playing pieces written in a jazz style. Before we get to the interview, one feature of this podcast is that I occasionally discuss products other piano teachers have created that I believe could be beneficial for my audience. In all of these cases, I thoroughly look through the product myself to be sure I can vouch for it. If you've created something that you'd like mentioned on All Keyed Up, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Today, I'd like to talk about Brock Chart's Five Finger Pop and Five Finger Jazz series. As I've mentioned in numerous episodes on this podcast, I fully embrace popular and contemporary music in my studio, but sometimes when using arrangements of popular music, I come across pieces that are unsatisfying since it can be awkward to adapt vocal lines to the piano. Brock Chart's Five Finger books provide music that is stylistically referencing a lot of the music that our students listen to recreationally, but it's written with piano students in mind, so everything is idiomatic and sequenced thoughtfully. Here are some snippets of backing tracks from the series to show you what the music is like. The series was recently featured in the American Music Teacher magazine with a great review by Dr. Michelle Conda. If you order from the website www.my-melodies.com and enter the code KEEDUP10 at checkout, you can get 10% off anything you order. Now on to the interview. Jeremy Siskin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. 
It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Today, we're going to talk about introducing jazz piano to students. I want to start with some big picture questions before we get into more specific things that teachers can do. I've always been interested in the fact that stereotypically, it seems more common for jazz performers to have classical training than vice versa, both for students at jazz schools and looking at the training of some of the most well-known jazz and classical performers today. So I'd like to know why you think that is, and also speaking yourself as someone who's really knowledgeable and experienced in classical music in addition to jazz, what you think piano students in a mostly classical lesson setting could gain from having exposure to jazz? Yeah, I, I love that question. Thank, thank you for asking. Um, so let's take it from the jazz point of view first. Um, and I think of like the poster child for being a well-rounded musician, a well-rounded pianist in the 21st century to me is Brad Meldau, right? Brad Meldau is an incredible pianist in any genre who leads, leads his own trio, but is also out there writing a concerto for the LA Phil, writing art songs for Renee Fleming. Um, or you could take Keith Jarrett who records the whole Well-Tempered Clavier and then records all of Shostakovich's preludes and fugues. Or Chick Corea, who's out there performing Mozart concerti with European orchestras, but is also one of the greatest jazz pianists to ever live. So clearly on the jazz side, there's this interest in classical music. And um, I hope this doesn't sound too pedantic, but you know, I think about jazz piano, it's got these two elements. On one hand, we have jazz, which is a tradition, you know, which dates pretty far back, but really starts in the early 1900s. Um, but on the other side is piano, right? <laughs> and piano doesn't start in the early 1900s. In fact, some of the greatest music arguably to ever exist is written for this instrument, the piano, for hundreds of years. So for people who consider themselves really well-rounded jazz pianists, they don't want to, you know, take out of consideration what Bach's written, what right, Chopin's written. Right, acting like nothing happened before jazz started. <laughs> yeah, we have so many resources that put us at this incredible advantage. It's so rich. Um, and, you know, part of what we love about jazz piano is that piano side. Um, and I consider myself, you know, part of that lineage who's fascinated, not just by Jelly Roll Morton and Ert Tatum and Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans, but also by Chopin and Schumann and Schubert and Brahms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, why doesn't it go the other way? I mean, I think there's a ton of reasons, um, socially, historically, practically. I mean, I think one is that there's just so many demands, you know, if you're really going to be a concertizing classical pianist. Um, there's so much repertoire to learn. There's so many, so many hours of practicing to do that traditionally, at least the, I think the view has been that, you know, you need to have this incredible tunnel vision, right? Not only in terms of your piano studies, but in life, right? <laughs> like if you want to be, you know, if you want to go to Curtis and start playing concerti, like, you know, you're maybe going to be homeschooled, <laughs> right? There's not time. For yeah, you can barely even have non-musical hobbies. Yeah, exactly. There's not time for those other things. Um, I think there's also social reasons. You know, certainly there's long been this idea that's starting to crumble, that classical music is sophisticated, it's elegant, it's refined. And for various reasons, some of which I'm sure have to do with racial coding, jazz is belonging to the lower classes. It doesn't really belong in a conservatory. You know, it's not as desirable for a cultured person to study jazz. And while, like I said, you know, now you can go to our greatest conservatories, although I guess I mentioned Curtis and you still can't really study jazz at Curtis to my knowledge. Um, but most of our great conservatories now have a really um, lively jazz program. But even, you know, to like 
to study jazz at a conservatory until about 10 years ago, the only way that people convinced the big wigs at conservatories to allow jazz students as if they also studied classical, if they pass all of their metrics. Oh, I didn't know piano. that. That was part yeah. of getting admitted as a jazz student was to take a classical test. Well, not only that, but in at Eastman, where, where I went, I had to pass two. I wasn't allowed to take jazz lessons until I passed two years of classical lessons. Um, and it's actually the same when I taught at Western Michigan University. I think both of these places have changed in the past five to 10 years. Um, we required our students to pass out of sophomore juries in classical piano before they're allowed to study jazz. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think a lot of them are societal. Um, but on the other hand, I think you can make a strong argument that if you can't play the instrument, you're not going to really be able to stand a chance at being incredibly creative. You know, we still in jazz need to have really solid technique, be able to play with a good sound, have great coordination between the hands, good hand, you know, interdependence or independence, all these things that you need to play a classical work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's this, <laughs> this relationship that makes a lot of sense. Um, but for those historical and social reasons, it's kind of been this one way relationship that jazz pianists study classical music, whereas vice versa, it doesn't quite work so well. And so for our students who are in a predominantly classical curriculum or even some of our listeners who themselves have more of a classical background, can you talk about what they could potentially gain from studying jazz? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, it's just a different way to connect to one's instrument completely, right? Um, I think I, I imagine maybe one metaphor would be that classical music would be like being in a very serious play, being in a Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespearean play and doing jazz is almost like doing improv, like comic improv. And it's just, you know, you get on stage in this completely different way. You get to experience that instrument differently. And I encounter so many classical pianists who feel a different sense of joy and connection and freedom with their instrument. I think you also have to listen in a different way if you're going to be creating at the instrument rather than, um, Certainly the best classical pianists do more than just imitate. But, you know, if you're going to be really generating music off the page, you have to have a different relationship to the way that you're listening to the instrument. And really importantly, you have to have this different relationship with the way that you listen to others, right? In jazz, the choices that we make depend upon what happens in a chamber ensemble, right? What does the bass do? If they choose a certain path, then I'm going to choose, I'm going to change my path. Um, and so for anybody who's playing chamber music, to be able to listen in, in that detail of a way and be surprised and then react, I mean, that's something that's going to like really deeply resonate with the way that you would interact with other musicians. So those are just a few of the things. It's a whole new level of teaching collaboration. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we're going to talk about improvisation later, I'm sure. But the very first like to me, the primary question of improvisation for a student, a teacher, anything is, are you listening to yourself when you play? <laughs> I can completely divide people into two paths based on whether or not they're listening to themselves. Um, and even just asking that question, you know, of course, the best classical pianists are listening to themselves as they play. But um, just asking that question, are you listening to yourself as you play? Can you hear when a note is tense and wants to resolve, right? Can you hear when a melody is getting overly repetitive and wants to do something else? Now, all of a sudden, as you're playing your Mozart sonata, you're not only passively listening, you're actively listening 
right to to the way that one phrase leads to a next to the way that a suspension needs to resolve um or you know the way that he's in uh, a diminished chord is creating a sense of incredible drama um so you know these i know we all have students who can play the notes but aren't really making that music and jazz can be one path to making sure that a student's actually listening to themselves in that way where they can be more interactive with the music in real time. Right. I've had so many instances in my studio where I've had students make mistakes and I wonder if they were even aware that they made a mistake. And I can see that having them work on jazz improvisation could be a way to boost not just their improv skills, but also their overall mm-hmm. self-awareness and ability to listen to themselves so that they could catch mistakes more readily in lessons and when practicing. So going on this idea of listening to yourself and improvising, I think I have a lot of listeners and I know I've had students who definitely do listen to themselves when improvising, but all they can think about is how much they stink and how terrible it sounds. (laughs) So I want to talk about this fear that a lot of teachers and students have regarding improvising, even if they actually enjoy jazz and don't have that stuffy attitude that you alluded to earlier. You've obviously talked about this topic through a ton of lenses, and we'll talk later about what sorts of resources you offer to piano teachers to help them become more comfortable with improvising. But without getting into some of the finer details of improvisation, let's say you had a student come to you who likes jazz and wants to get better, but they get very self-deprecating about their own improvisational abilities. What would be the first few steps you would take with a student like that? Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. Um, and. Yeah, especially I, I work with a lot of piano teachers who are coming to jazz later in, in life. And it's so hard because they have such highly developed ears. Many of them come to jazz because they love jazz and they've been listening to it. And so they can tell when they're listening to themselves, even when they're doing kind of a nice job, when they're fulfilling an assignment, they're like this doesn't sound like the jazz that I'm listening to. Um, and so it's it's really a tall order and it takes it takes actually a lot of psychological strength <laughs> because you have to deal with something maybe not sounding the way that you want it to um, for a pretty long time. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, but that reminds me of one interview I listened to of yours where you compared this to weightlifting and breaking a muscle down in order to build it up later. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, I think that that would have been that you have to you have to break a muscle to then make it make it stronger. Things are going to get worse probably before they get better. A few things that I like to do with with these students. So first of all, in order to what I guess the first place that I would start is not necessarily with jazz improvisation, because jazz is this musical style. We can think of it as a dialect. Right. And so if people aren't comfortable with the feeling of improvisation, with the feeling of getting in a flow, with the feeling of listening to themselves as they play, um, then playing in a specific dialect with all of these, you know, rules about, oh, it's nice to use upper extensions of chords and alter tones and all of these, you know, non-chord tones and fancy things. It's just throwing so many things in a pot <laughs> right at once, right? And we need to let a few things simmer <laughs> and then start adding more and more ingredients. So I'm a big fan with starting with really controlled, basic improvisations, um, I I like starting people with what I call drone improvisations, which probably isn't going to be news to a lot of your your listeners, right? For a drone improvisation, I I just have them play a single note or a low fifth on the piano, an unchanging um, bass, and then just pick a major scale. You know, usually we start with C for the the ease of, of C and just make some melodies. And what I try to do 
at that point is draw their focus into some different places. Because I meet so many people who think that being a better and better improviser means knowing more and more. They need to know fancy scales. They need to know licks. They need to know, um, you know, all these transcribed solos of jazz musicians and all those things help, of course. But the vast majority of what we need to make a really good melody is actually just in a scale. Um, but we need to start thinking about how we turn that scale into a beautiful melody that we connect with. And so I'll give them focus prompts. The first one I already told you, which is, are you listening to yourself as you play? Um, the next one is usually something like, are you making phrases with clear beginnings and endings? And a good way to test this, both of these first two things, is whether a student can repeat what they play, <laughs> right? Um, so if to, any, to be able to repeat something, you have to have been paying attention and listen to it, not just wiggling your finger. And you have to have created something memorable. You have to have created something memorable and it has, has to be finite, right? <laughs> um, sometimes we get, I jokingly refer to as diarrhea improvisations where yep. somebody's just wiggling their yep. fingers and it's notes, 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 notes. There's not really a rhythm to it. There's not really yep. a stop, start or a stop. So a great test in the beginning for a student or a teacher trying to improvise is can you simply repeat the thing that you've just played. Um, and then I would start getting into um, things like, are you using expressive leaps? A lot of people keep their hands very closed when they first improvise. So are you using intervals like six, sevens? And when I say expressive, I'm asking them to use it intentionally, right? Listening to themselves as they play. Um, are you using a variety of rhythms? Is it just all quarter notes? Are you mixing it up? Um, and so we'll approach it from that way for the first few weeks of lessons so that they just get this inherent comfort having, you know, uh, like uh, I use this language metaphor all the time. And I'm actually currently studying Spanish on Duolingo. It's what I it's what I did right before we, we signed on. Um, and I'm pretty darn good at these Duolingo exercises. I don't want to brag, but like given an exercise, I can do well having a conversation with somebody, I just collapse quickly, right? And that's, I think, where a lot of people are with their improvising, is that they understand the basic rules, maybe what scales they, they should use. They play the piano, they know how the piano works, but actually just getting in and doing it, you have to log some hours. <laughs> like there's no substitute for just getting in there, immersing yourself a little bit and having conversations. So doing it in this, this comfortable way, just on a drone, um, to me is such a valuable first step. Um, and then you can start moving into some more common chord progressions. But So earlier in that answer, you were talking about starting off not just in a jazz style, but with some basic improvisation exercises. And then you mentioned some elements that are more associated with jazz, like upper structures, transcribing solos and learning licks. So let's jump into this <laughs> uh -huh. teaching sequence a little bit and say the student has done the drone stuff and they want to move beyond that basic improv that doesn't really have a style and move into something that sounds a little bit more jazzy. Yeah. What would be some of the first things you do? Yeah, good question. So I, I kind of have two tracks uh, that are both, I think, valuable places to start. Uh, the first, I bet a lot of teachers already interact with, which is the blues, right? And the blues is such a valuable thing because 
you know, usually we have to think about chords changing, scales changing as a progression progresses. <laughs> I guess that's what a progression does. Um, but in, in the blues, we generally keep the same blues scale for the entire progression, or at least that's one of our options with the blues. So once you learn that uh, one, two, three, four, five, six note blues scale, you can apply that all across the blues. And the blues also is just kind of fun and sounds pretty good. <laughs> um, and so this can be a student's first experience with playing improvisation while chords are changing. Um, and again, I definitely suggest that repetition is a big focus. Um, and I always like to give students incredibly clear goals. This is one of the problems with teaching improvisation is I just say to you, improvise on a blues. And then you could do it. Yeah, and say, everyone's terrified. Yeah. A, it's too wide open. And B, you can do it. And you can say, I did. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> so it would almost know, certainly turn into that diarrhea improv you talked about. Earlier. <laughs> yeah. So um, a couple ways that you can avoid that. The first is by giving specific rhythm and phrases. So, you know, I might say improvise over this blues progression. And I want you to play call and response phrases. And every phrase is gonna be two measures. Um, it's too early for me to sing. I was gonna sing an example, but it's, it's, it's 8.15 here. If you don't mind me playing the example instead. Um, so it would be a, a nice two measure phrase. And then I'd ask you to repeat that phrase. And then a new phrase. And then repeat that phrase. And then it's a 12 bar blues. So we've done eight measures now for the last four measures. I would say, I just want you to do whatever you want, a longer phrase. So that's one time through the blues. Then we do it again with different phrases. You're going to make up the first phrase and then repeat that. So what are we doing here? We're practicing the blue scale. We're practicing this feeling of improvisation. We're making sure that you're playing in logical phrase models, right? Two bar phrases, really nice. Call and response, really nice. And we're checking that you're listening to yourself and paying attention all at once. Plus, I can give you a check mark and say either you crushed it, you did a good job, or that wasn't quite right. You didn't quite repeat yourself um, accurately. Or maybe your phrase model is too long and you're getting lost in that blues form. I also think that engaging with it in that kind of inside out way where you see how bad it sounds when there isn't any repetition. And so mm. then you try it again with repetition and notice that it sounds less wandery mm -hmm. will then make you more appreciative of the repetition you see in the classical pieces that you play. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I always... I always like having students do the wrong thing so they can experience that and then they can appreciate right, exactly. the right one, right? <laughs> so yeah, the blues would be one track. The other track is uh, practicing over two, five, ones. And if you know much about jazz harmony, two, five, one is like the, you know, $1 bill in jazz harmony. It's, it's everywhere, you know, for jazz standards, it makes up maybe 70%, 80% of these chord progressions. And the beautiful thing about two, five, ones, besides the fact that they're very common is that uh, if you have a 251 in the key of C major, you can use the C major scale against that entire 251. So, what I love about this is that it's such an easy transition from that drone exercise, right? Because what are we doing? We're improvising just over a major scale over a drone to now let's think about this chord progression. But there's a couple differences. So, um, the first big one is that 
now we have a succession of chords. And now, and this is getting to your question about what makes it feel like jazz improvisation. Now we want to hit some chord tones of the chords instead of just using a scale. Because I could play... Right? And all the notes fit well enough. Of course, I can do that more rhythmically. It's a solid B, right? I'm playing the correct scale. The rhythm's pretty good. Um, but there's not really a strong relationship between the progression and that scale. So what do we do? We want to add arpeggios. And one way, you know, I teach um, in my, my beginning classes um, what we call a three, five, seven, nine arpeggio, going from the third, the fifth, the seventh, and the ninth of each chord. So, um, and this has this jazzy sound because it has the seventh and the ninth in addition to these more basic chord tones. So first we practice that as an exercise and then we want to, um, we can use those as hand positions to improvise within those hand positions. I'm only using those four notes, the three, five, seven, nine. And then check this out. By the way, this is an incredibly accelerated lesson. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, then we can add some other things. So, for example, we could mix some scales and arpeggios. So I'm going to play scale. Arpeggio. Scale. Right. And I could do all the different combinations of mixing in scales and arpeggios. And then I could add some chromatic lower neighbors. Now, and now it's really going to start sounding jazzy. So instead of just, I could play. Right. So I'm just adding that note a half step below that ninth. And it could be any of those notes. really sticking with three, five, seven, nine, but now just adding in a couple lower neighbors there. This is such a less stressful way of doing it than I was taught, where you keep changing the scale every two seconds, depending on what chord you're using. I think it's called, called chord scale theory. I remember being stressed out earlier in my jazz studies of having to remember what scale I'm allowed to use at any given time. Yeah, and it, it can be that way. And so in part, it's the teaching. So I could teach this same progression and say on D minor, we're gonna use D Dorian, on G, we're gonna use G Mixolydian, on C, we're gonna use C Ionian. Um, totally correct. These are all modes of the C using the C major scale. Um, but to me, the actual better solution is to think in terms of key centers and to say this 251 is all in the key center of C. So we don't have to worry about thinking about three different scales. Now, of course, some pieces, if you're gonna play giant steps or you know, a really difficult piece, yeah, you're going to have to change scales a lot. There's not really a way around that. Um, but I actually prefer teaching arpeggios. Um, well, you kind of have to teach both, but I love the simplicity of arpeggios because, number one, all of the notes of the arpeggio sound good, right? In a scale, you're going to have some notes that are going to be tense, right? Famously, the fourth of a major scale is going to be really tense and demand resolution. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the arpeggio really cleanly defines the chord. Right, there's this really strong relation. And even if you have a chord that you can't figure out a scale that goes with the chord, you can always use the arpeggio. 
And then number three, you have fewer notes to remember and you, it kind of narrows down some of those options. So just like we were talking about with the blues, I could just say to you, go ahead, play the blues. It feels kind of that same way if I say, go ahead, play the C major scale. There's so many, I mean, <laughs> how many incredible melodies from classical music, popular music are created using the C major scale. If I say, use these three arpeggios, now you've got these limits. Um, and I'm telling you, be as creative as you can within these limits. So for all those reasons, um, scales, you know, there's no way around scales and modes. Uh, they, they do come up, but to me, they come up a little bit later. I don't think they need to actually be the priority. Um, and I think students learn better when, when those aren't, you know, the first thing that you get to. That's interesting to prioritize arpeggios over scales. Definitely seems much less confusing that way. So we've been talking a lot about what to take in mind when improvising, which is, of course, a core component of jazz. But at least in the way that jazz is introduced to piano students in studios nowadays, that's not the only way that jazz is used. On the more simplistic end, many method books have fully notated songs in jazzy styles. And then on the more advanced end, as you alluded to earlier, there are transcriptions of solos. So for teachers who are working with students on those pieces, I know speaking personally, there can be a temptation to work with those pieces the same way we work on any other pieces. And we fall into the same usual points we make about phrasing and technique and such. But for teachers who want to offer more nuanced feedback than that and actually help students play, quote unquote, in the style. I know, of course, mm -hmm. it depends on the piece and jazz is a massive umbrella term that subsumes many other styles. But do you have any basic suggestions of some sorts of things teachers might consider when working with students on the more stylistic aspects of their jazz pieces? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first big thing is that, you know, it's you might've heard this, that jazz is an oral language. And on some levels, that's this kind of cliche that we throw around, but it's really deeply true <laughs> that if jazz is a thing that you're doing on any level, doing it without referencing the recorded history of the music is not really doing it. So my biggest suggestion to somebody who might be playing a jazz piece is to pair it with some sort of a listening assignment um, and have a student, maybe just one track challenge them to listen to it twice a day for a week. And do you give them things to listen for when they listen to these recordings or do you just have them listen to it and then react however they may? It depends on the student and, and the scenario. Um, and also, you know, what you're hearing maybe in their playing, you might hear that they're not getting the swing feel. So you might ask them to, you know, listen for the swing feel. Um, I think it's really instructive, assuming that it's, you know, a, a, at least a multi-instrument group rather than just a solo piano thing to have them listen to each of the instruments, you know, listen to it once through focusing just on the drums, listen to it once through focusing just on the bass. It teaches them so much about how music actually works to move their ears around. I try to, I, I've written quite a few books for Hal Leonard and I always try to make, give each piece some sort of a connection to jazz history. Um, I think that's one thing that we need to do better in the piano pedagogy world is that, you know, there's a lot of classical pianists who write a cute little jazz piece and the piece might be okay, but jazz is this very proud, rich history and everything should, you know, it doesn't have to all be historical, but there needs to be some point of reference to the recorded music. So I'm a big believer that you should form some kind of connection with the history and recorded music of jazz when you're teaching it. 
Beyond that, probably the biggest quote unquote mistake that I see piano teachers make is about swing feel. Um, if you're willing to get into swing feel, I want to talk about a, a couple of things there. Yeah, let's talk about it. I've been wondering about this a lot because when I was taught jazz, I was taught that jazz is all swung and felt like triplets, like But then over the years, I've learned that it's sometimes a little more complicated than that and not all jazz is swung and it depends on the tempo and some jazz like bebop is straight. And I saw this interesting video of yours where you talked about how in bebop and faster tempos, you can make it feel swung even when it's technically <laughs> yeah. straight. So can you talk a little bit about the rhythmic aspect of jazz? Yeah, you did your research. Man. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So swing is an incredibly complex, multifaceted element. And your student doesn't have to know everything about swing to play a swing style. Um, but I think the biggest thing that's overlooked about swing is the articulation aspect and particularly accents. One of the big things about playing in the jazz style is that unlike the classical style, which for the most part is supposed to be incredibly refined, right? We want to smooth all the edges. We want to have these beautiful shapes. We want it to be like a high class accent. Um, in when we play jazz, we want it to really feel spoken. And so just like hopefully my voice is modulating as I'm making a point or I'm asking a question, or just saying anything, we don't talk like this, right? Unless we are Alexa or a robot or whatever. Um, I hope that didn't just turn on like 50 people's Alexas. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so just like we don't talk in a monotone, in jazz, we really don't want to play in a monotone. And the, we have this issue that we're making the first of every two group, uh, of every group of two eighth notes longer. And so what people tend to do, especially if they're coming from Western background, is to make that first note also heavier. So you get what I call Ricky Ticky eighth notes, which instead of having a good swing feel, um, if I may play, sounds like. Really heavy on the downbeat, because what are we doing now? We're not only lengthening out the note on the beat, but we're giving it a little bit more weight as well. Right. And if we're coming from a Western tradition, this makes sense. The, the weight goes on the downbeat. Right. <laughs> and it also probably goes on the long note most of the time rather than the short note. But we want to counteract that because we don't want a really heavy beat um, and we want to emphasize the syncopation. So the biggest thing that needs to change for most jazz students and most of the time when I hear teachers or people from a classical background playing in a swing style is that they need to shift the weight from the on-beat note to the off-beat note. So. Hear that difference? It makes a world of difference in terms of how hip I sound. From Absolutely, it's like clapping on two and four versus clapping on one and three. Yeah, 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 it really is. That's exactly right. So that would be, you know, I don't have time to talk about all the different elements, but flipping the weight onto the offbeats is going to be really the biggest thing. But jazz overall is this style that has a lot of accents. And so playing anything too straight, and by straight, I mean same, similar volume all the way through, is not really going to capture the swing feel of jazz. And um, yeah, I don't probably have time to get into all of, all of the details about how that works at different tempos and in different sorts of styles. Um, but it's at least worth pursuing and listening is going to be your most direct 
path there, much more so than listening to whatever I might say. <laughs> that being said, there's still a lot to be learned from everything you okay. do have to say. I know we didn't have okay. time to get into all of these details today, but you offer so many resources to help people become more familiar with jazz, whether it be teachers or students. So can you talk a little about what you're up to now and how anyone listening to this who would like to have a little bit more of a deep dive than what we talked about today can learn more about you? My pleasure. Um, so I do have a YouTube channel. That's probably the easiest way to get access uh, to me. And I try to post two educational videos a week. They're 10, 15 minute uh, short things. It's not going in any kind of order. It's just whatever I feel like talking about that day. Um, but I do have quite a lot about swing feel on there. And I have quite a lot about drone improvisations and arpeggios and those sorts of things. Beyond that, um, I do offer a remote class through my community college. Uh, I have two levels of jazz piano and I have a lot of piano teachers taking those, those classes. So uh, you can go to jeremysiskind.com slash jazz class if you're interested in more information. The next semester will start in, in August. And then I have books. Probably the one that's really most interesting for piano teachers is called Jazz Piano Fundamentals. And this one was this long uh, sought after project of mine to make basically the lessons that I would like to teach for the first six months of study. And so each chapter has lessons about things like comping, improvisation, swing feel, uh, finding chords, things like this. And then there's assignments at the end of the chapter. One of the most common questions I get is how do we practice jazz? So I tried to give very specific assignments. There's also guided listening. So it includes that listening component that is so, so clear, clearly needed. So I wrote this, with myself in mind, because I, I feel like I can never get to all of the material that I need to get to with students. And so the idea is there's 12 units spent about two weeks each on each unit, and you'll be done with the book in about six months. And hopefully level two will be coming out by the end of the summer, assuming that I can write it that quickly. Uh, but that, that's kind of the game plan there. I also self-published a book called Playing Solo Jazz Piano, which I'm really proud of. It has an introduction by Fred Hirsch, who's arguably the greatest solo pianist of our, yeah, Fred, Fred's a mentor of mine, incredible pianist. Um, and I think it's, I've been told by a lot of pianists that it's, it's probably the best resource if you want to learn how to play solo jazz piano. It's, it's 20 chapters, gets into a lot of different styles, references a lot of recordings. There's always suggested listening at the end of the chapters. That's for somebody who already is coming in with some jazz experience. It, it comes in at a, a pretty, you know, uh, collegiate level, I would say. But there's just years and years worth of ideas to play around with in there. And I say that because it's like, these are all the things that I practiced for the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so yeah, those are a few ways that you can find me. And I'll do one more plug, which is that I just came out with a double album called Songs of Rebirth. Uh, that you can stream anywhere that you stream music. Um, or if you want to buy a hard copy, you can buy it off my website, jeremysiskin.com. Excellent. I will link to all of that in the show notes. That was a lot of great tips. I was lesson planning in my mind as you were saying a lot of that. Really great suggestions. So Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for tuning into All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>